Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Well, good morning, everyone. As we get started this morning, I want to read to you one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. It's found in Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. It goes like this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? You know, I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, one of the reasons this story is so compelling to me is because of how convicting it is. And my hope is that it will challenge you to the core of your heart, just like it does me. See, here's a question I think we should all wrestle with personally. Why don't we spend more time reaching out to people outside of the faith? Like, why don't we spend more time reaching out to unchurched people, people who don't know Jesus? And I know the typical answers. Like, I don't know many lost people. I'm intimidated by it. I'm not sure what to say. And I get that. But I also think there's a deeper underlying issue. It's the simple fact that we don't sense an urgency. And our hearts, if we're honest, they aren't really into it. And I believe that's why God has given us this little story we just read in Luke 7. To see if our hearts beat for the lost like his heart beats for the lost. Now, in order to fully grasp the depths of this story, you need to understand the social etiquette of the first century. 
But before we go there, I want to start by assessing where you and I are in terms of social etiquette in our day, in the 21st century. I'm going to give you a little etiquette test. Okay, I ran across this many, many years ago. I just want to see how well you know what is considered proper behavior at a public function. Okay, are you ready for this? Here we go. Here's the first question. When should one start eating the main course at a formal dinner? Are you ready for this? A, after the hostess is served. B, after the hostess lifts her fork. C, after three or four people are served. Or D, ASAP with urgency and passion. Okay, the correct answer is C. And I'm not making this up. This is from Amy Vanderbilt and Emily Post. So if you've got a problem with it, you can go and take it up with them. All right, next question. At a formal dinner, when should the hostess be served first? A, never. B, if it's her birthday. C, if the first portion is difficult to extract. Or D, if she's a greedy pig. <laughs> okay, the correct answer is C. You know, sometimes that first portion is kind of hard to get out of there. It may not look very appealing. And that's when the hostess is supposed to step in. So now you know, all right? Two more. Question, a man invited to dine upon a yacht more than 50 feet in length, moored out of town, must wear which of the following? A, a sportsman's cap, B, an ascot, C, oilskin boots, or D, knee-length wool socks? All right, the correct answer is D. All right, you're supposed to wear shorts, and according to Emily Post, with shorts, wool socks look the best. All right, so now you know, okay, you're ready for that next trip question. What does one do at a formal dinner when one is still hungry after the main course? A, ask for a second helping. B, say loudly, is that all there is? C, yell, look out the window and take food from your neighbor's plate while he's distracted. Or D, call Domino's. All right, I'll let you figure that one out. You know, the point of this little exercise is that every culture has certain rules that govern social behavior. Like, how do we host and welcome people? In what ways do we honor and value people? In what ways do we ignore or insult people? And this idea of social etiquette is crucial to understanding the story we just read. So let me give you a little lesson in first century Jewish etiquette to enlighten your understanding of this text. First of all, Jesus is invited to dinner at the home of a Pharisee. Now, as a visiting rabbi, he would have been expected to be the guest of honor. And so certain things should have taken place. For instance, it was customary for a guest to be greeted with a kiss. Unfortunately, we don't do that in our culture. That would be a major COVID code red violation, right? But it was common back then. And if the guest were a person of equal social rank, he'd be given a kiss on the cheek. If he were of higher status, say maybe a child greeting a parent or a student greeting a teacher, he'd be given a kiss on the hand to express honor and respect. And by the way, do you remember how Judas betrayed Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He gave Jesus a kiss. But part of why that was so painful is that Judas in that moment would normally have given Jesus a kiss on the hand. I mean, that was the way to say to one's rabbi, I love you, I revere you, I, I follow you. So the kiss on the cheek was actually a sign of indignation. Just a little theological aside for you there. 
Now, to neglect this proper greeting in Jesus' day, it was the equivalent of simply ignoring someone in our day. Like imagine inviting someone over for dinner and then not greeting them by name, not shaking their hand, not offering to take their coat. I mean, what we have here is a shocking breach of common courtesy. But there's more to it than that. You know, in that day, washing feet was mandatory before eating a meal. Nowadays, if someone says to you, wait, would you care to wash your feet before we serve dinner? You probably got some kind of issue going on that I don't even want to talk about right now, okay? But in that day, people commonly had very dirty feet. And so if your guests were a person of high status, you as the host would offer to wash his feet yourself. And if he were of lesser status, you would ask your servant to wash his feet. Or at the very least, it would be a little callous, but you could give him a bowl of water so he could wash his own feet. And that's not all. There's one more thing. A host would also give the guests something for anointing. You know, olive oil would have been the common, inexpensive thing to use. And back then, anointing someone's head was a thoughtful way to refresh him. So get this, right? Jesus is invited into this home. He's a rabbi and he's given nothing. Like no greeting, no kiss, no washing of the feet, no anointing, nothing. And these are not subtle omissions, easily overlooked, okay? This is a deliberate slap in the face. Maybe Simon wanted to put Jesus in his place, or maybe he's just afraid of being too closely associated with Jesus, of of looking too friendly. But for whatever reason, this greeting is very cold. And because of these omissions, the tension in that room is so thick, you can cut it with a knife. And then, at this very moment, a stranger is present, a woman. Okay, you need to understand, banquets were a little different in those days. They were public affairs. And so wealthy people would often hold their banquets in a courtyard so it would be open to anyone outside. And because there weren't movies to go to or other things to do, you know, commonly people walking by would just come in and watch. And so this woman comes in, and all we're told about her is that she is a sinner. Okay, that's code word in that day for a prostitute and one that was well known as such in that village. You know, apparently this woman had heard Jesus teaching maybe earlier that day. And something about him resonated deep in her heart. And she most likely began to wonder, you know, how did my life end up like this? I mean, no little girl grows up thinking, that's what I want to do with my life. Once she had been the object of a mother's hopes, dreams, and prayers. But somewhere along the line, it all went south. And maybe her husband rejected her. Maybe this was just the easiest way for her to make money. But on this day, she encountered Jesus. And the thought came to her, as it has to many of us, in spite of all my sin, God loves me. I am loved by God. Has it been a while since you've pondered that truth? God knows all about me, and he still wants me. It's mind-boggling when you think about it. And it rocked this woman's world. Well, she hears that Jesus is going to be at this dinner, and so she goes to the courtyard. Of course, she wouldn't have been invited to the dinner, not in a million years. But she gathers all of her courage and stands in the doorway to watch. And she is just overwhelmed by love for this man. And as she watches how Simon treats Jesus, like how he's ignored and insulted, she can't stand it. And all of her love, all of her devotion, all of this anger inside of her bubbles up to the surface. 
But what can she do, right? I mean, she can't be the one to give him the kiss of greeting. <laughs> no, that would be presumptuous. She knows how everyone would interpret that action. But then she has an idea. You know, she could kiss his feet. I mean, to wash feet was an act of abasement. To kiss them would be an act of utter abandonment and humility. So imagine the drama. Like this woman walks through the courtyard to the table and everybody's watching as she kneels down at Jesus' feet to kiss them. And she glances up at his eyes and instead of seeing judgment or embarrassment, all she sees is love. I mean, she hasn't seen that look in the eyes of a man very often. Maybe never. And now she sees it in the eyes of the best man she's ever known. A man who loves her not as an object to give him pleasure, but as a daughter and a friend. I mean, he loves her not in the shadows or the darkness, but in the light of day in front of everybody. And then tears come. Like a few at first and then more and more until they're pouring down her face. Tears of sadness at what she's become. Tears of gratitude because Jesus offers her forgiveness. Tears of joy because maybe there could be a new life, a new future for her. And Jesus' feet, unwashed by Simon, are now soaking wet with this woman's tears. And she wonders, well, how, how can I dry them? Well, no use asking Simon for a towel. He'd never give her one. So on impulse, she lets down her hair. This is another shocking breach of etiquette, people. I mean, this story really comes to life when you understand the culture of that day. A woman in that culture always wore her hair up in public. It was never allowed for a moment for her to let her hair hang loose in mixed company. I mean, it was considered too provocative for men to be able to handle it. They figured that men don't do so well with impulse control. Back in that day, of course. You know, if a married woman in that day let her hair down in front of any man other than her husband, it was grounds for divorce. It's true. A man could divorce his wife for letting her hair down in public. Now, everyone at that table knew her profession. She had let her hair down many, many times with many, many men. Everybody knew that. And now she's going to do it one last time. But this time she gets it right. This time she lets her hair down as an act of love and devotion to the one she would follow. Now, she also had an alabaster jar of perfume. And again, because of her profession, this flask was probably the most expensive possession she owned. And she empties the whole thing out. You see, she won't need it anymore. I mean, not where she's going. This act is as much a sign of repentance as it is sacrifice. She's pouring out her life. And she can't anoint his head because she's a sinful woman. He's a holy man. And so she thinks, well, I, I can anoint his feet. Like no one ever anointed feet. And then she kisses him over and over again. She's been so broken, so undone by his sheer goodness. It's as if she's forgotten who she is, where she is, and what she's done. She just pours herself out in love and gratitude. And Simon is watching all of this. <laughs> this dinner is certainly not turning out the way he had planned, right? And he says to himself, well, Jesus must not be it after all, because if he were even a prophet, he would know who this woman is. He wouldn't let her touch him with a 10-foot pole. 
But Jesus does know about this woman, and he does know about Simon, just as he knows about you and me. And so he tells a little story. He says, Simon, once upon a time, there were two debtors who owed money to a moneylender. And this is the only time in the New Testament, by the way, that this Greek word for moneylender is used. It's the term danestes, and it refers to one who lends money at high rates of interest and so becomes wealthy on the backs of poor people. And in that day, those who allowed themselves to get into debt were not very highly thought of. They were considered unwise or undisciplined. But the money lenders, okay, those guys were in an even worse class, like way down low. You know, in our day, Jesus' parable would be the equivalent of a story like this. Let me tell you about two bookies who got in over their heads to a loan shark named Vito, okay? Both of them owed him money, and neither of the two bookies could pay Vito back. But here's the difference between the two of them. One of them had a debt that looked manageable, had the illusion of manageability. But the other guy's debt was so huge, he knew he was toast. He was absolutely desperate. Now, Vito, the loan shark, calls them both in, and he says, I tell you what, you know, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'm going to forgive your debts. Just dig them off the books. Like, forget about it. Okay, that's the modern day equivalent there. And Jesus then says, now, now Simon, who's going to be filled with the most relief, the most joy, the most gratitude? Who's going to be seized with love for the one who has graciously set him free? I mean, whose life is going to be turned upside down? The little debt guy or the big debt guy? And I love Simon's response. He says, I suppose, like, he doesn't want to say it because he knows where Jesus is going. Well, if you force me to answer, I guess big debt guy. And Jesus says, with some humor, because Simon's supposed to be a bright guy, you've judged correctly. Give the boy a cigar. You know, up to now, the conversation has just been between Jesus and Simon. But now in verse 44, we read this. It says, Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman, Simon? You know, Simon didn't see the woman. Religious people get that way sometimes. We get that way sometimes. I mean, he saw a theological object lesson. He saw somebody way beneath him, like somebody he'd rather not have in his world. Somebody he thought of as a blemish on the earth and certainly not cared for very much by God. See, he didn't really see her. Jesus says, Simon, do you see this woman? You know, I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. Right? Jesus is being kind. He doesn't mention that Simon should have washed his feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. Like you didn't even kiss me on the cheek like an equal would, let alone on my hand as a student would for a rabbi. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. She anointed not my head, but my feet and not with some cheap stuff. She poured out the best that she had. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. She's forgiven. You know, can you imagine what that does to the heart of this woman? For Jesus, the rabbi, to say before all these people in a public setting, 
that her slate is wiped clean. Wow. Here's the story, Simon. The one who's forgiven much loves much, and the one who's forgiven little loves little. Now, don't get confused by this parable. You know, Jesus is not saying, Simon, you're such a righteous dude, you've hardly sinned at all. So you don't need much grace. You have just a little debt. No. The problem is Simon perceives himself to have little sin. And that's what makes it so hard for him to love. I mean, he looks at those he thinks of as big debt people, and he wonders, how come they can't be more like me? More righteous, more in control. And he's filled with judgment and superiority. It makes him obnoxious. And the question this story raises is, who really is the big debtor? Now, there's a great sin in this room, but it's not the sin Simon thinks it is. It's the sin of eyes that will not see and lips that will not kiss and knees that will not bow and tears that will not fall and a heart that will not break. And the greatest commandment is to love. Love God and love people. So the greatest sin is a refusal to obey the greatest commandment. Simon, don't you see that you have the biggest debt of all? You know, if only you could see it and fall to the ground beside this sinful woman. If only you could feel the pain over your sin and be overwhelmed by God's love for you the way she is. You know, this woman had the need for grace for a heart that was broken. Simon had the need for grace for a heart that was hard. And the question is, how is your heart? You know, how is my heart? And when we see someone who doesn't dress right or act right or vote right or live right, how do we respond? Now, this applies to our mission as a church to lead people to Jesus. I mean, how's your heart for people who don't know Jesus? Simon could have been the one to lead this woman to the feet of Jesus, but he didn't. He missed what truly mattered. Now, let's talk for a minute about what matters in your world because we can be led astray by so much stuff. You know, most people invest a lot of time and energy in four things in life. Their house, their cars, their money, and their careers. But you know what? One day, your house is going to crumble. And that really cool car, it'll be sitting in the junkyard one day. And that money, someday all that money is going to somebody else. And that job or position you're ready to sell out your soul and your family for, one day, you're going to retire, get fired, or die. That's good news, isn't it? That was worth listening to the message for, wasn't it? Hey, it's simply the truth. You know, here's the bottom line about all of those things. The best things this world has to offer are temporary, temporary, temporary. They're all going to wear out, fade out, or give out. And if you've set your heart on those things, you need to know that you're setting your heart on temporary stuff. Temporary fulfillment, temporary meaning, temporary pleasure. Now, there's only one thing around you that's not temporary. One thing that's eternal. It's the people in your life. It's people. Your mom or dad, your son or daughter, your brother, sister, friend, neighbor, co-worker. The one reality you can take with you from this world to the next is the souls of the men and women you love. So I have a little name tag here that says it well. It says, Hello, my name is eternal. My name is eternal. 
And I want you to picture this name tag on every person that you encounter in life because it's the only thing that bears that title, eternal. People bear the title eternal. So what do you want your life to be about? What's your vision, your grand purpose? Jesus taught, the Bible affirms, and we believe that heaven and hell are real places and that human beings face an eternal destiny with God or apart from him. And so God, he puts people in our world, family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, and he asks us, where's your heart? Is it for leading people to me, making disciples, learners, followers of me? Now, let me ask you right now, how's your heart when it comes to helping people come closer to God? Like, are you praying for real people, real faces, real names? And maybe you're sitting there and you're wondering, well, I don't know, how do I open up doors to share God's love with people? Those that are outside the faith, those that don't know Jesus. I'm gonna make it super simple for you this morning. I'm gonna give you three steps. Pray, play, and say. Pray, play, and say. You can remember these. First of all, pray for it to happen. Like look around you every day and ask God to help you find opportunities. Just try it. Invite God into ordinary moments of your life. Do your life with God. I'm telling you, you will be blown away how things just start popping up if you'll pray. Second, come up with an intentional plan to do certain activities, certain hobbies with people outside the faith. Like whatever you enjoy as a hobby, do it with non-Christians. Play golf, play tennis, play video games, whatever it is. And then third, and this one is huge and super simple. I want you to say this one line. One line. I want you to practice saying, I'll pray for you when people share something big going on in their life. And just watch how that opens up conversations. I'm telling you, it's a safe comment. People don't get offended by that. And people will respond. Trust me. Those three steps, pray, play, and say, will open up all kinds of doors to talk about your faith. And then you can share about your relationship with Jesus or invite them to check out our church or recommend a book or whatever the next step might be in their spiritual journey. Jesus said, the one who is forgiven much should love much. So let's get after loving people, all people, like Jesus did. Because any other investment in this life will be temporary. But each and every person you lock eyes with, they're eternal. They're eternal. And that's what truly matters. So let's get out and share God's love with them. Pray with me. Lord, I just thank you so much for this story. It's so powerful. It's so convicting. And God, I pray that it would touch our hearts. That we would not be like Simon and just be content in our own world, our own righteousness, and forget your enormous love, not just for us and how you've forgiven us, but the fact that there's a world out there that you love. That every person we lock eyes with is an individual that you love, you care for, that you died for. And you've called us to be your ambassadors, to be the ones out there bringing that love. And that applies to all people. 
So God, would you help us to love you by loving others, especially those outside the faith, those who don't know you, those who may be so, so far from you. God, would that just be a a reflection of our love for you, that we would reach out and have the courage to share your love with others, recognizing that every soul, every man and woman we encounter bears the name eternal. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.